Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and join me now continuing our wonderful series of Cemetery Dance Publications writers. Philip Farkasi joins me to talk about his recently released book, Gothic. And to preface this whole thing, Haunted Desk, the end. I can stop right now, cancel the show, and that's all we need. But we're going to keep going because there's a lot more to dive into. Philip, welcome to the show. It's so cool to have you here. Uh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. All right. All right. So let's, of course, dive in with Haunted Desk. That is sort of the cornerstone of this book. What inspired that choice? Because I know when it comes to horror writers, whatever the you know villain is can sometimes come from the weirdest places. Yeah, I don't 100% remember the impetus for the haunted desk. I think what it was, was at the time uh, that I came up with this idea, I was writing a lot of screenplays, um, something I was doing more around 2010, 2011, those those years. And I think I, I, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to, you know, try my hand at at a, at a at the trope, and I think what happened was that I originally had the idea that there was a writer, and he got this desk as a gift, and he found like a secret compartment in the desk, and the secret compartment had like this weird old manuscript, and I thought that was a good idea, but I didn't think it was a great idea, and I also didn't think it was the most fun idea in the world, and then. I saw Drag Me to Hell uh, by Sam Raimi, one of my favorite movies of all time. And I was kind of like, oh man, I want to do something just really nuts like that. I just want to kind of go, I want to, I just want to have fun with it. I want to have just, I want to have a, I want to write something really fun and really spooky and just kind of like, you know, um, a, a haunted house joyride kind of thing. So, I said, well, shoot, instead of there being this like haunted spirit, which is sort of tied to the desk, which is kind of the original iteration, I was like, I'm just going to make the desk haunted. And um, and then I kind of created a backstory for the desk from there. And um, and so, yeah, and so it kind of grew from it kind of grew from there, it kind of grew once I kind of came up with that idea. And I kind of took off the handcuffs a little bit where I was sort of like. You know, I wasn't so worried about like writing, you know, Macbeth or whatever. I was like, I'm just going to like write a fun, crazy, you know, balls to the wall uh, horror novel. And that's what I, and that's what I was, that was my, and I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be entertaining. I wanted it to be gruesome. Uh, it's dark. It's, you know, there are some people who think it's too dark, um, but I try and, you know, I always tried to have my characters um, be flesh and blood people. And sometimes that gets me in trouble because uh, I think people tend to respond more emotionally than they might. If I didn't create such well fleshed out characters, then, um, then if I were just kind of creating these cutouts that go through the, this, like, you know, or horror show so so yeah so that's kind of was the impetus for the haunted desk and it kind of all stemmed from there what about creating the backstory for this thing did you go through a bunch of different ideas before you said okay yeah this is what we're going with um oddly no the backstory came pretty 
quickly. I, I, um, you know, for those who haven't read it, this is not a spoiler to the very first chapter. Um, you know, the desk has basically been this object, you know, that has been, um, making its way through the centuries, you know, uh, and, um, in different forms in different places. And it's sort of this like malignant object. Um, and that, that, that there's like always looking for a host, if you will. And in Tyson Parks, the protagonist or antagonist, depending on how you look at the book, um, of the of Gothic is sort of like this perfect storm of a host. He's got the talent, he's got the uh, the reach that the desk wants. Um, he's got the drive to be successful, to have, you know, he's got that Freudian, uh, the, sorry, Faustian, um, desi- you know, kind of deal desired to be, uh, to be great. And, and uh, so he kind of makes a deal with the devil in a way. And, and a majority of the book um, is about his struggle to balance what he knows is right and what he wants. And um, that's a big chunk of kind of the, um, the human element of the book is, you know, you watching him sort of have to make these decisions knowing they're the wrong decisions, but, you know, sometimes he makes them anyway and has to suffer the consequences as do those, you know, around him. You mentioned that Tyson is initially the protagonist and then kind of is also the antagonist. And we'll talk a little more about this later on too, but, um, where do you think he kind of falls? Is he the good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he just some unlucky victim in the wrong place, wrong time? Yeah, it's a good question. Like my characters in my books and stories are not, I don't want to say this in a way that makes me sound egotistical, but they're not, they're not traditional characters. They're not cookie cutter characters. They're not, I, they're very ambiguous. They're real people. So like any real person, like you or I, we have our faults. We have our dark sides. We have our light sides. Um, some people are good at some stages in their life and bad at other stages in their life. Um, I was definitely, you know, a less nice person when I was in my thirties than I am in my forties and fifties. So, um, so there people are complicated is the point and they're not black and white. So I think Tyson wants to be good. He wants to be the protagonist but I think as the book goes on, you realize um, that he's 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 not the hero of the story, um, and maybe there is no hero in this story. Um, and sometimes stories don't work out the way that a reader wants them to work out, and um, sometimes readers can be be pleasantly surprised by that. Because some one thing I do get a lot of response um, from in my books and stories is whoa, wasn't expecting that. And that's really makes me happy because that's kind of one of my goals is to sort of up and convention and, and do things a little bit differently than they've been done for the last uh, 50 or 50 or hundred years or whatever, and, and try some different things. And so this is sort of an, this was sort of an experiment in creating a character that was uh, on that line between good and bad, not an anti-hero, but really on that line between being, an antagonist or, or protagonist or being good or being evil. And you don't really know. You have to read the book and find out what happens. Exactly. All right. So let's dive into the story then, because we have a Tyson Parks. He is a famous but struggling horror writer. Is there any like crossover between yourself and Mr. Parks? 
The only crossover, well, first of all, I want to say, because a lot of people who are listening to this just rolled their eyes, because people hate the fact that I have a horror writer as the main character of my story. But, and I'm not going to defend it, but I will say this, I realize I realize that it's an overdone character. I um, Part of the fun of this book is that I take very traditional tropes and I, you know, and I upend them a little bit. So it's, it's kind of a, the book in some ways is kind of a, a gag. You know, if you really read closely and if you really read what I'm writing and if you uh, pay attention, you'll realize that what you're reading may not be what you think you're reading. Anyway, so that's that. Um, but, uh, no, I, the only parts about Tyson that I would say are pulled from my life or from reality, if you will, um, is sort of the struggles that he goes through as a writer. I do, because I have firsthand knowledge of that, obviously. And I've had, I've had firsthand knowledge of working with big publishers, working with agents. Um, so with struggling to, you know, get stuff sold. So, I do so that stuff is very much taken from I don't know if I want to say my life but from but from reality from from a writer's perspective so there's a lot of that baked into his character for sure it's 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 experience that I've had so I'm to a degree I'm writing what I know as it pertains to that but as far as his personality the things he does um no it's all fiction it's it, it, there have been some readers who have you know, speculated that he's an amalgam of Stephen King and Robert McCammon with a maybe little Clive Barker thrown in or whatever. But the reality is he's, and I make a lot of overt mentions and references and just to King and all the great horror. There's a lot of stuff in this book that you got to, you're either going to like giggle at or royerize at. Cause I do like to kind of reference a lot of the horror stuff, the modern, you know, horror authors. And that's, like I said, this book is supposed to be fun. It's not, you know, it's not supposed to be um, uh, changing uh, lives or, you know, or, or ending hunger. So, so I do try and have fun with it. And, um, but, but yeah, no, as far as his character is concerned, he, he is, he is 100% and totally uh, imagination. Uh, I really wasn't basing him on anyone or any, any writer. Um, it just, just, uh, it was just kind of his personality that, that I, that I created. Okay, so continuing on, so uh, Tyson turns 59, and his partner Sarah buys him this antique desk that she hopes will kind of spur those creative juices, maybe get him to sell a bestseller, you know, prove he's not, you know, past his prime, which is exactly what happens. He, being, he, his writing is, is profound, it's dark as hell, it's disturbing as shit, but it's selling. He is a huge success, and he's also becoming more... Kind of acting weird, becoming more violent. Probably not a good sign, but hey, if he's selling them books and making them money, who who really cares? Meanwhile, this mysterious woman is trying to find this artifact that her family has been hunting for centuries. Guess who has it? Tyson Parks. So you have these two stories, you know, that will eventually be meeting up. Um... I'm curious to know a little bit more about this mysterious person. Who is she and why is she at this desk in the first place? Yeah, there's actually three story threads. There's, there's technically two. 
I mean, it doesn't really matter. But there's there's a historical thread, which is basically me telling you the history of the desk throughout the centuries. Then there's the um, B story, which is uh, Diana, you mentioned, who is this uh, the last of this line, um, this family line, who have been hunting this artifact for for the for all those centuries, and you and you find out why she's hunting it through the historical segments of the book and and so yeah so all three of those in a way all three of those um those storylines converge you know um the two modern storylines converge the most viscerally and um and uh yeah so she she's trying to uh i don't want to get into spoilers but she's basically trying to reclaim the the object uh so that so that it can be controlled so that it can be, you know, um, protected, if you will, or society perhaps can be protected from it. Or possibly she's, maybe that's her front of the brain reasoning and maybe her back of the brain reasoning is <clears throat> that she wants access to the, the power that it can potentially wield. But for the most part, that's the understanding is that she's trying to get this object out of, Tyson's hands because Tyson is wide open. It's like when you're dealing with uh, like the spiritual realm or the demonic realm. And now they always say like, well, the more you are open to that realm, you know, the more you're reading about it or studying it or, you know, investigating it, then the more susceptible you are to say possession or whatnot. Whereas if you are, you know, you're not a believer and you think, you know, the ground stops underneath the grass, then you're not as open to that, that kind of stuff. And maybe you won't get possessed as easily. So, so I think with Tyson, he's basically a giant sponge, you know, um, for evil. So, so Diane's trying to, to protect, protect the desk from, from utilizing him to do some sort of uh, greater evil in the world. And, um, via his fiction as it turns out so it's got a bit of a mouth of madness angle it's got a bit of a shining angle it's got a bit of a christine angle i'm totally happy to say all this stuff because i would be i i would for one thing it's obvious and for the thing i don't mind you know standing on the shoulders of giants what i'm trying to do with this story is to like i said earlier is to take all these magnificent wonderful well-established tropes and do something completely different with it. Um, and that's fun and modernized and, and, uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of the point, but that's, that's why that's the whole Diana element to it. And she's an, she's an interesting character as well that um, I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing about. You know, you've mentioned a few times about uh, taking these tropes in the horror genre and just upending them. What tropes in particular do you really want to upend, and what do you think is gained by doing this? Well, again, this is you know this book is written to be a piece of entertainment. Um, so the gain is to entertain readers um, and to give readers a taste of the good old days in a way. Um, I think um, one of the things that Tyson struggles with in the book is. Uh, how far he has strayed from modern sensibilities of what is a, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And it's very, I don't know if I think funny is the right word, but it's very interesting for me to read a lot of reviews where they are bashing this book 
for the exact reasons that Tyson is getting bashed in the book, which is all to make a point that a lot of reviewers and readers aren't really grasping, which is fine because like I said, ultimately it's a piece of entertainment, but, um, but there is also some, there is also a theme beneath it. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's just, um, I don't know, as far as opening tropes or, or the, or why I wanted to do it, I think it was just because I wanted to look, I, I just, I'm a writer, you know, I'm a, I'm a creator and I write what inspires me. I mean, I've, you know, I have, um, I've sold books that haven't come out yet that one's a, you know, one's a science fiction thriller. I have another book that's kind of more of a, you know, a, a straight thriller with, you know, kind of with, with the kind of a young modern sort of twist. And then I have another book that takes place in the 1900s, you know, it's coming out in July we talked about. It. So, and then this book is kind of like more of a thrill ride where I wanted to kind of like do something with these old school themes and, modernize them and do something different with them so you know there's no real construct to why i write what i write other than i write what interests me um what i find i can do something um fun with and ultimately repeating myself a little bit ultimately all this stuff is created for readers um you know i write so that people can uh have a couple hours of engagement where they're entertained and they're hopefully happy about the experience and they can forget about the real horrors of the world for a little bit. And that's kind of why I do what I, what I do. Has that always been the case for you? Were you always about, you know, sort of tackling these tropes and doing things differently? No, I don't think so. I think this book is pretty unique to that. I mean, this is kind of like, this is my, you know, this is just, you know, um, I don't know. This is just that I do. Like I said, I do something different with each. Every book is kind of different. If you read two or three of my books, I think you'll 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 have a better understanding of what I mean. My, um, like a Child of Always Strangers, which came out last year from Talos. That's kind of a crime, uh, kind of crime horror hybrid. Um, uh, like I said, I wrote a you know science fiction novel that's coming out uh, in a couple of years. I'm writing a book about the civil war right now that's coming out next year uh through night fire so um no i kind of i just it's just like whatever spurs my imagination it's very hard to um like i'm a full-time writer so i'm always writing something whether it's a short story or a novella or a novel or a screenplay so for me it's very important that i write things that interest me um because i have to spend a lot like it takes you know it takes somebody you know, six hours to read what takes me six months to write. Right. So I have to really want to write that story and really write about those, really want to write about those characters. So it's really whatever interests me on the day and that my interests tend to change with the wind, you know? Um, so it kind of just depends on what I feel like writing. And that's what I, that's what I write. Given that, do you plan your books out? As far as like outlining that kind of planning, um, oh yeah, I'm a big outliner, huge outliner. Um, I, um, I, you know, I come, I don't, I wouldn't say I come from script writing, but I, but professional because I've been writing since I was a little kid, writing fiction since I was a little kid. But professionally, I come from script writing in that I know I, uh, that was my first success as a writer was selling scripts. So, you know, I had a couple movies made, a lot of movies for Disney. 
wrote a movie for Lifetime Television. Um, so, and I wrote a lot of other scripts uh, that were not made. And but these scripts are very um, structure based. They're very much. Um, they're not novels. They uh, you have to. There are parameters you have to stick to whether you like it or, or not. Um, it's not a great business if you're a quote unquote pure artist. You don't really want to get into screenwriting because you have to. Actually, it's a pretty technical. Um, it's a pretty technical um, skill set, and and it could frustrate. I know. I know. In fact, it does frustrate a lot of writers. It frustrates me as a writer, which is why I now write fiction full time. So, um, so point being though is that you learn structure and you learn to have your story mapped out and you have your beats mapped out. Uh, um, and so, but so the way I work is with very quickly is with my short fiction. I tend to have an idea. I have a beginning and a middle and an end, basically. It could be a couple paragraphs scrawled out on a piece of paper. Um, and then I write. If I'm writing a novel, I have a Scrivener program open that's got uh, 100 you know, bullet points. Each chapter is broken out. There are notes on each chapter. There's character development, character development notes. There are red herring notes. There are, you know, seeding you know, seating here for this reveal later kind of note. It's very structured. Um, and I love, right. I love doing that. I, I, I love outlining because once I begin writing a novel, the last thing I want to be doing when I'm writing a novel is wondering what's going to happen in the next chapter. It's, I do not want to deal with that when I'm writing, when I'm writing, I want to just write and I want to write, I want to focus on the prose. I want to focus on the dialogue. I want to focus on the action that I'm writing about. I want to focus on the, you know, the, the, the manuscript. I don't want to worry about the plot or about, about, um, you know, what happens in the story. Now that said, things change. You know, I wrote this novel called Blue Butterfly and, um, and I had the whole thing outlined. It's a, and it was a very extensive outline because it's a time travel mystery thriller. So, you can't just fly. You can't just write it from the seat of your pants. You have to know where you're going, what you're doing, and all that kind of stuff. And about halfway through the novel, um, my character did something that she wasn't supposed to do, and it totally screwed me up. And I had to stop. I had to kind of go back to my outline and basically rewrite a major chunk of my outline moving forward because this character did something that I didn't want her to do. I wasn't expecting her to do. So. That stuff does happen, um, and I go with it. But I'm still doesn't mean I throw out my structure. It just means I have to make modifications as I go because I, I always want to know where I'm going. And I think readers appreciate that when they read a story. I think readers know when a writer knows where they're going and when they don't. Um, and I think I think it, sometimes it comes through in in the in the in the way the story is told sometimes. I like that. I really like that very detailed approach because, you know, some people, you know, they just kind of go, they just write and they see where it takes them. Others will say, okay, we'll do chapter by chapter. Here's the plot points. And you really, you really go all in with the planning and the detail. Were you yeah. always that detailed or did it take time to sort of build this structure for your books? No, it's something that I've developed as a, as part of my process, I mean, the reality, I mean, I've written, so, you know, in my thirties, I wrote 
like uh, I wrote like three novels and a bunch of short stories, none of which was genre, all of which was non-genre fiction, we'll say. I don't use the term literary fiction, but I line genre fiction. And and none of those stories are novels sold, right? Um, and so I started writing screenplays and I started writing horror screenplays because horror was my passion. And it's a longer story why I wasn't writing horror. Don't ask, I don't know the answer. Um, uh, but I, I wrote those novels kind of like the way you're describing. I was just like, I had an idea. I kind of had the character in my head and I was like, I'm just going to start writing and I'm going to kind of see how it goes. And I've since published two of those novels um, with smaller presses. And one of them was, uh, one of them hasn't come out yet. One of them was very well received. Um, so I think they work, but they're, but they're also different. They're smaller novels. They're character driven. They're not mysteries or thrillers or they're not, like I said, they're not a genre. So I'm not really, I wasn't really overly worried about what, you know, plot and the beats of the story. So like I said earlier, I did the screenplay stuff. And when I was writing screenplays, that's when I really learned about um, the beats of a story, uh, you know, structure to a story, having, you know, what we call pinches, you know, where to keep the reader engaged um, uh, throughout, stuff like that. And, and, you know, whether it be, you know, 15 beats or 22 beats or whatever it is, I kind of, I just learned a lot about story structure and about what, how to tell a good story and how, you know, so when I wrote my first novel, genre, my first genre novel, which was A Child Alone with Strangers, you know, I wrote, that's 160, sorry, it's a 170,000 word novel, which equates to about 600 pages. So it's a 600 page novel and it's got a million moving parts and a million characters and a million different storylines. And I just, and I tried to write that novel the way I had written these other novels and it, and it wasn't working because it was just too complicated so i started outlining it the way i was out i would outline the screenplays but even and then i got kind of got into that i was like oh that's interesting and i can like it's fun to see where the story is going without actually having to write all that prose and it saved me a ton of time because i knew what i was going to be doing so that's why that novel really taught me i taught myself sort of how to outline a novel the best way to do it and that and it's it's an it if you ever see that outline it's insanity there's it's got it's probably like a hundred plus beats it's got character development it's got pictures it's got website set length it's got music it's got all this crazy stuff so but it was a really i really had fun and then when i wrote the novel i knew exactly what i wanted to do i had a very clear picture in my head from beginning to end of exactly what that novel was going to look like and it was a big novel and i knew that and my agent at the time tried very hard to get me not to write that big novel. And my current agent um, loved the novel as it was, as it is. And, you know, we even had an offer on the book from a publisher, but they wanted me to cut out like 50,000 words. And I was, and I said, I was like, no, no, I like the book the way it is. So we ultimately sold it to um, Talos, but but the point is, so that taught me how to outline. So now it's just sort of my, I've written, I think, five novels since then. Um, and now it's just the way I do it. And it's so, it's so, um, for me, it's so nice because it, for one, I, I, I have a lot of fun working out the plot, working out what's going to happen, how it's going to end, all that stuff. So that when I actually start writing, all that stuff is done. All the heavy lifting is done and I can just write it. And that's, and then I can ex 
experience a different kind of joy, which is just writing the prose and developing those characters and fleshing stuff out. And that's, that's a lot of fun too. You know, I want to go uh, pivot back into the book because one of the things I was really curious about is Tyson Parks, he's got this desk. It's inspiring him in this whole new way, but it's also corrupting him. I'm curious exactly how does he change as a person from the desk's influence? Well, you said you said it fast, which is that he's corrupted. His his um, sense of right and wrong is corrupted. His sense of who he is is slowly corrupted and slowly taken over by this force. And um, and like I said at the head of the conversation, he has to make our decisions as to whether you know what what he wants to do does he want to does he want success or does he want his family you know um and those are the kind of hard decisions that the desk is kind of forcing him to make because he knows he's very aware that he's changing he's very aware that he's being corrupted he's very aware that he's becoming a very bad person um so he has many opportunities throughout the book to to stop um and to reverse course. And every time he has something happens, every time there's an incident, we'll say, and they do escalate, he has an opportunity to, to pull it back. And um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, it ultimately changes. And then it changes him in other ways that are less psychological, but that would be getting into spoiler territory. So, but yeah, so he he's but yeah, so he's like you said, he's basically just corrupted, becomes sort of this dark version of him of who he was. Or maybe he becomes maybe the dark version of who he is emerges and the light version of him is lost. And there's even a part in the book where you kind of get to see this fully fledged new version of him. Um and it's sort of I, it, for me, it was one of the more interesting parts of the book was being able to sort of um, take a hard right and and do something kind of different with his character. So, yeah, so so that's basically, yeah, it's, it's basically a psychological feeding on his greed, feeding on his desire for success, feeding on his ego, and uh, and ultimately, yeah, turning his heart black. Or does it? I don't know. No, who knows? Who knows what happens at the end? <laughs> exactly. You got to read the book, folks, if you want to find out what happens. I like yeah. this, though, because I feel like in, in some cases, not all, obviously, but in some cases, when it comes to a corrupting force, it's like the force just kind of basically moves in, kicks out the person's soul, and that's it. You know, the end, you know? I like how there's this right. is a more shades of gray kind of thing. Like he, like Tyson's aware. He knows he's becoming an asshole, and yeah. But he's like, but I'm also making crazy money and you know making the New York Times you know top uh, top ten seller. So you know maybe worth it. Is this meant to be any kind of uh, like a you know success can corrupt you kind of like message kind of like a no because he never really reaches the success he hopes to have most of the corruption that takes place is the process it's not the end result so i wouldn't say that no no i don't look man i don't two things you won't ever read in my books politics or or 
moral lessons. I'm not, I'm not here to teach people how to think or how to act or what to do with their lives. I'm here to entertain. So I don't, I don't, I don't do that stuff. I don't get, I don't go there. I'm not Walter. I'm not, what was it? Walter Cleaver. What's the Cleaver? What's Beaver's dad's name? What was Beaver's dad's name? Wasn't it Walt? Well, for those of you who are old like me and watch Leave it to Beaver when they were little kids, the dad would always have like this moral that he would tell the audience at the end of the, each episode. They actually stopped doing that, I think, after a season. But and I'm not anyway, I'm, I'm not I'm not Beaver's dad, man. I'm I'm a horse. I'm a horror writer. You want you want to you want to have some fun. You want to read a cool story. You want to like have some shits and giggles and um you come you know you read one of my books if you want to get into politics or morality read read something else fair enough all right so speaking of reading something else you have another book coming out in just a few months this one is called boys in the valley out in july tell us about what we can expect from that one yeah thank yeah thank you i'm excited about boys in the valley so you know i i'm as a writer i've kind of I've, you know, I've had moderate six indie, what we would call indie success. You know, I've had a couple short story collections. I've won a couple awards. I've had a couple, you know, my, my last two novels have been on Talos Press, which is like a mid-list publisher and Cemetery Dance, which is a very well-respected horror press, but they're small. They're, you know, they're kind of a, a small operation. So this is my first, the book that's coming out is called Boys in the Valley. It's coming out from Macmillan toward Nightfire. Um, is the imprint and um, and uh, and Orbit is putting it out in the UK for anyone listening in the UK. So yeah, so Boys in the Valley is um, it's a the story is it's about an orphanage in circa 1900 in uh, rural Pennsylvania and 30 boys live there and there's these priests that take care of them and um, and then one night one stormy night as it were. Um, uh, there's a visitors come to the orphanage and, um, one of the men, uh, has, uh, has very, uh, demonic. He, he acts as one would might, if they were say possessed by demons and, uh, and then he dies at the orphanage, uh, and, and an evil is sort of, um, released. And uh, some of the boys are affected and some of the boys are not. And, and I think the reason I was kind of like moving around that obstacle a little bit is because it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, uh, it's not predetermined why exactly the boys are all acting the way they are. It's just not a great place to grow up. It's a very harsh environment. The priest can be overly um, harsh and um, so there's a lot going on for these boys emotionally. And um, and so what happens throughout the story is basically when you have when you're in this isolated uh, environment and a storm comes and drops a few feet of snow and people are people are dying, um, you know, it can get chaos ensues, basically. So that's kind of what the um, that's the basic gist of the book. Ooh, I like it. I like that idea. All right. Well, Philip, this has been a lot of fun. I'm certainly enjoying learning all, all about Gothic, which, folks, 
get yourself a copy of this book. All right, this is a this is an amazing book. You can get through. Uh, you can get through our good friends at Cemetery Dance Publications. That's cemeterydance.com. Check them out for more books than you could spend your whole life reading, and that's a good problem to have. And then, of course, in July, Boys in the Valley. That's that's unsettling, but I like that. And of course, you go to pfarcasi.com. F-A-R-C-A-S-S-I. And uh, Philip, definitely looking forward to the next conversation for the next book. Uh, yeah, thank you, Max. And one thing I will say about the Cemetery Dance thing is if you go to Cemetery Dance, if you buy your book from Cemetery Dance versus, say, Amazon or whatever, uh, Cemetery Dance is the only place where you can buy a hardcover edition of Gothic. If you if you prefer for three for a few bucks more, you can get like a, a case laminate hardcover, which is which is look which looks pretty nice. So mm-hmm. just FYI for those who are listening. Yeah. Exactly. Can't buy it anywhere else. Yeah. Exactly. Certainly, certainly support this this small but very but very powerful press. Get it at your local bookstore. If they don't have a copy, ask them to order a copy and they will do it. It's what they do. So support your local retailers, support the local press, and support these great authors. So Phil, thanks once again, and we'll be talking real soon. Cool. Thank you so much. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on! And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks to everyone for listening, and be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram at Citywide Max. You can reach me at citywidemax at yahoo.com to suggest a guest or submit music for the Blackout Collection playlist. You can find the show wherever you check out your favorite podcasts, and new episodes are aired every Saturday at 10 p.m. EST on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.